Welcome to the good, the bad, and the sequel Q&A. My name's Doug. So the next sequel that we're going to be reviewing is The Last Sharknado. They had to end it sometime and they did it with the last one. And uh, wow, it's something. But we're doing this movie because an actor who was in uh, Mookie from Ghoulies Go to College, I had a little back and forth with... uh, actor Patrick Laberto on Twitter and this is how the interview that you're going to hear in a couple minutes uh, came to be. I called him Mook. He said it's Mookie in a really playful fun way and I shot my shot and I said hey man I'd love to talk to you about your career because loved you in summer school, Heathers we didn't even talk about Three Ninjas but I loved him in Three Ninjas and just so much more. So much fun uh, talking to Patrick man he's been in so much over the years, and he's always been in it, always since he was a kid. His every connection to him, his lineage is actors, and there's a great story about that. But Little House on the Prairie and how he reinvented himself, you know, after that. But I love that he loves Hollywood, like he loves acting as a job, but he loves it when he's not doing it. So he's some really cool behind the scenes stories that he shared. Uh, about working with some absolute legends. And uh, yeah, he was a blast to talk to, man. You're going to love him. And I love talking about, you know, the pandemic started. A lot of people started podcasts. We already had ours uh, in the going for a year. So we're not one of those guys. Uh, but he started what's called the Working Actor School. So over Zoom, he's able to, you know, teach acting to so many different people throughout the country. So you could, if you're in LA, you're in New York, Chicago, you're training with people that are there, you know? So with this, you're able to train with somebody from somebody from Iowa can be doing a scene with somebody in Texas. So it gives people an opportunity to, you know, try it out, you know, not have to give everything up and sleep on a couch in LA. Like Patrick talks about, uh, it's a cool thing. So check it out. I'll put it in the episode notes. It's workingactorschool.com. He's passionate. He knows what he's talking about. He's been doing it since he could crawl, walk. He's always done acting. And do me a favor. If you're new here, subscribe wherever you're listening. Rate us five stars. Share us. Tell your friends, your enemies, your neighbors, exes, everyone. Just do it. And follow us on all social media at Sequels Only. And uh, man, I love when I go back and edit because I get to re-listen and re-experience the interview uh, that I recorded a few months back. And man, this was more fun hearing uh, the stories again from Patrick. So I'm going to shut up. And without further ado, here's actor Patrick Laberto. Sweet, man. This is pretty cool. This is the first time I think I've uh, interacted on Twitter in like within a week that I'm talking to somebody. So that's pretty awesome. Well, that's great. Yeah, I just started back. I I was on social media years ago and then just didn't have time for it. And so I just started back in December. Yeah, it's cool because... Did you ever do theater over the years? Or it was mostly just uh, like TV and film. Mainly TV and film, but I did do Groundlings for a couple of years. And when oh, I was a awesome. kid, I did theater uh, when I was a you know a young lad. 
No, the reason I ask is like when you have like Twitter, and I guess sometimes it could be like obviously there's the negativity of social media as well, but usually you do a movie like especially back in the day, you know, you didn't know unless you sat in that movie theater in the back row, which some people admitted to me that they do do that. Like they would go opening night oh, sure. and like sit in the back with a hat on. And then when they laugh and they're like, Oh, they were supposed to laugh at that. Perfect. But like theater, you get to like that instant gratification. So you got that from the ground lanes, but it's cool that you go on Twitter and you see people you're like talking about these movies that when you made those movies, did you think that people would be think you know, X amount of years later, people talking about them? Um, not really. Of course, all young actors, you know, think that they're going to be super famous and everything they do is going to be amazing. Um, the only yeah. movie that was like that for me, I think, where I hoped that it would be the movie I wanted it to be. And if it was, then it would be like that was Heather's. Yeah. Summer School, we knew, you know, with Carl Reiner and everything that it was going to be the type of movie that you know, if it's done right, will be, you know, it'll be a box office. You know, it was a Paramount film. It was like a real, real movie. It wasn't like an independent. Yeah. It was like a real movie. And we were all excited about that. But as far as having that type of movie, because there's a bunch of movies made in the 80s, of course. Oh, yeah. And you VHS, know, uh, boom. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so you never knew what was going to punch through. And I think for summer school, it was somewhere along the line tbs got it and they just started using it as a time filler and just started playing it yeah everywhere and so <laughs> it became one of the movies that people grew up with yeah it's like christmas story like scotty schwartz i interviewed and he's actually i'm in new jersey and he grew up uh -huh. like not too far from here and he told me that how, that's how like there was like an accidental the the way christmas story became like that 24 hour marathon i could see that i uh, Personally, I'm old enough. I saw Christmas Story in a theater with a girlfriend, and I wow. freaking loved that movie. I don't think I've laughed as hard as I did when Randy was, you know, getting dressed up. But yeah, I can see how uh, it became a thing. Like with um, uh, "It's a Wonderful Life," became what what it is because it was in the public domain, and so every little television station could afford to play it, and they yeah. played on Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> So Patrick, I love hearing about like the origin stories, like all the people that you've worked with that I, I like you know, David L. Snyder, who's the production designer, or I, I don't know if he did the art direction or the production designer on a uh, summer, summer school, school or Stuart Fracken or yeah. a number of the people, Ron Schmidt. I actually just put out that interview today. I heard that. When I talked to Ron. Oh, I, cool. I listened. I was listening. I was like, going, wait, <laughs> have I, has, has the ghoulies interview already gone up? Did I do it already? <laughs> Well, no, you were in another sequel, so I'm going to use it for the Sharknado one. But I love finding out origin stories. Like to me, that is like the coolest thing about hearing how people started because the the failure rate in this business. I'm sure you've worked with so many people over the years that you're like, oh, this guy's going to be it or she's going to be it, and then a year later, you know, it's a hard business to to make it in. So where? So what part did you grow up out in California? Yeah, I was. Talk about origin stories. I'm adopted, and uh, the reason why I'm adopted is because my biological mom and dad came out to Hollywood to be actors. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, they met, and uh, they fell in love, let's say. But they had a baby, and that was me. And 
unfortunately, my mom had the baby and she was, you know, her family didn't want her out in Hollywood with a baby. So they, they convinced her to, you know, put me up for adoption. My father, on the other hand, had like eight other kids. So I've got like eight <sighs> brothers and sisters all around the country. But I was then adopted and I was adopted by, guess what, an actress. <laughs> And, you know, my baby announcements were, you know, we're working on a, a new production, you know, with like a movie camera and everything. So they're really, you know, and, and I have been acting in, in commercials since I was three years old, which, you know, oh, wow. you don't, you don't pick your career at three, you know, your parents yeah. put you in it. And, and so, yeah, the, the longer answer to your short question was, yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley pretty much haven't really been outside of a 10 mile radius as far as, you know, my home my whole life. Wow. When did you find out were your parents pretty like forward with you, your adopted parents? Like when did you know? Oh yeah. No, it was uh, the adoption. The adoption was like the least weird part of my life because they, they treated it like, when did you know you were born and how that all worked? It's sort of like you kind of always knew, but I, there was some time yeah, when yeah. you didn't know, but then you found out. And that's kind of what, what it was. I was always, uh, I always understood what it was and, uh, and was never really weirded out by it. Uh, and then I finally, I ended up finding my father. My mother had passed away. I found my biological father, which, you know, just, it could have gone so many different ways. But, you know, as soon as I met him, he was living in a van down by the river. I mean, it's, if it wasn't, if it wasn't exactly that, it wouldn't be so funny. He was living in a camper out in Borrego Springs and I go out there to meet him. And, you know, within 10 minutes, he's pitching me a script idea because he thinks that I could probably get it made. And it's like, Oh man. When, what year was this? Like late eighties, nineties? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. I think early nineties, I think is when it was. And, uh, it was just, you know, it's sort of like, oh, okay. So that's all, that's all the connection is to him. And, uh, yeah. and, you know, there really wasn't a connection on my part, except for the biology, you know, right now, yeah. I, I don't know if, what you'll see, but you know, the way I look right now is the way he looked when I met him, you know, with the white hair and the beard and, and just pretty much the exact same thing. Um, so, yeah. So right in the thick of it, like no matter you couldn't, not say you couldn't escape the career, but it was on, you know, either side. It was in your blood and then, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was really, was there. It, it absolutely, there were times and there was a period in, in college when I was going to college uh, when I decided, okay, well, maybe I'm not going to be an actor, maybe, but I did love filmmaking. I want to be a filmmaker. I'll be a writer and a director. And and I did that and I've written, I haven't directed yet, but I've written and 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 we've my wife and i produced a tv show i saw that that's awesome thanks man yeah we were really proud of that and just had i had the most fun on that it, it was it was a dream come true um to do that um but yeah there was a time when i figured okay maybe i'm going to do something different and it was kind of baked in i just you know i kind of love the town i love the i love the physical location here and i love hollywood yeah. and the whole thing so you said, so you go back to, you're doing like, what is it, like print catalogs or actually TV commercials? Yeah, both. I was doing, you know, I was doing, I was in like, like number let's see, three or four McDonaldland commercials. Oh my God. Um, I did. 
there was this one print ad where I went in, they looked at me, they booked me on the spot. They took me to the, the studio for the, to take the pictures. They took the pictures. I'd never seen it happen so fast. And they showed me the, the storyboard. And I looked literally just like the, the drawing that they had. And I was like, wow, okay. And then about six months later, I'm driving around and I see, you know, it's a picture of me and I'm smiling and I've got this big gap in my teeth, which I did. And above it, it says, you know, $1,200 can fix this. And so it was like, <laughs> sometimes you don't know what's going to, you know, what's going to happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was like little TV parts. They had this thing called, uh, what was it called? Oh, it was like your, not your show of shows. That's, that's a great show. The first one I hear is this is the life. Thank the you. First, this like, is credit. This is the life where it was like this Christian TV show where they tell little moral, moral plays and, you know, and I, I did a couple of those. I did a, a Tom and Huck pilot, an independent TV pilot for Tom, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. I mean, just weird things where it's like, you know, they built this raft and they took us out to this, this dam out in the valley called Hanson Dam. And it basically was stocked with fish, but somewhere along the line, all the fish died. I mean, all of them. And so there were hundreds of dead fish floating and we're supposed to be on the mighty Mississippi and this, this water is not moving. And we're on this raft that these guys made out of telephone poles. And I must've been about six, seven. And, you know, they've got a, a stunt guy below it, you know, holding the raft and moving the raft, but you know, we've got our poles, but even then when I was that age, I was like, well, aren't they going to see the hundreds of dead fish floating and bumping into our raft? It was just horrible. Um, and of course, you, no one's ever seen it because it was never picked up. You know, it was, no one ever bought it. But like things like that. Oh, my gosh. And then like one of the things on here, an uncredited role in Blazing Saddles. Is that right? Yeah, man, that was awesome. I had oh, the best man. time. I was it. They shot, obviously, the uh, the majority of it uh, on Western Street over at Warner Brothers. And I'd gotten this part, and it was actually a, a, a sizable enough part where if I was in it, I would, I just, it would have been amazing. But they cut me out, which, you know, come on, there's so much good stuff in there. Of course, they're going to yeah, yeah. cut tons of stuff out. In one of the scenes, it's in the church, and I, you know, I'm again, I'm like six years old, and I'm tiny, and I raise my hand, and I say, hey, look, I'll be sheriff. And everyone's like, hey, the kid wants to be sheriff. Well, he's tall for his age. He's big. He's brave. Let's make the kid sheriff. Yeah, let's make him sheriff. And my mom stops it. She goes, he can't. He's got school tomorrow. He can't be sheriff. And they go, well, we're going to need somebody. And then there's another scene where, you know, on the big day where Bart walks through town the first time and you know, yeah. everyone's cursing at him and he's just having a horrible day. He comes across a bunch of kids beating me up. And he stops the fight and he goes, what do you, what's going on here? And I said, we're just playing. And he goes, well, what kind of game are you playing? And I said, we're playing Welcome the New Sheriff. <laughs> and so I thought that was a good quality line that, you know, could have, that could have yeah. played. But of course, I mean, it's Blazing Saddles. So I was there for a month. Uh, there's literally just wow. two shots that you can see. Yeah, there was, I mean, watch the whole thing, because basically in the town, when you see all the townspeople, I'm there. And then, That's you know, cool. we would do my scenes, and then they can easily cut those scenes out. But you can still see me in the first shot of Rock Ridge, you know, if anyone cares. 
there's a shot where you see, you know, what the town is. And there's this little kid being drugged by this big dog. And that's me. That's the really the only one, the only shot that you can like. Oh man, I gotta to. check that out. No, I think that's so cool. I've interviewed people that are like, yeah, I was in this movie. I got cut. This guy, Troy Evans, he's been like a million things. He was an Ace Ventura. Like uh-huh. if you saw his face, you'd be like, oh, I know that guy. He was in, well, he wasn't in, he was in planes, trains and automobiles and his scene got cut, but he was on that movie for like two and a half months and they kept yeah. paying him like yeah. whatever it was. He was like, they paid me like the day rate. Cause they were like, if you went over a week, then they would give you like a certain something else. But he's like, it's the most money I ever made. And I didn't know work. Right. I did. There was a movie like that, you know, just there's great business stories like just like that, where I got a part in the movie Yes Man with Jim Carrey. And it was a good oh, yeah. part. And and none of that was cut out. I had I had uh, two scenes in that. One was where I apply for a loan and he denies it. And then later when he's saying yes to everything during the mid credit sequence, they have my character come back. And, you know, the thing that I'd wanted to make, these rollerblade things, he's now funded and they're going to be a big hit. So I had this two scenes. And by all intents and purposes, you know, and and the way it should have gone down is that's two days work. And, you know, it was a big budget movie. I should have worked two days, maybe been held for a week, and that was it. However, Jim, because of who he is, requested that they shoot the movie in order. So now I'm in one of the first scenes and I'm in one of the last scenes And the way they could only do that was to hold me through the whole production. So I got paid more money on that than any other film I've done for two scenes. That's insane. Do people ever do that? Or is that like, that's that's an odd thing to do. It is. And it's really expensive. And so production people and producers, they try not to. In fact, what you do is you you shoot out a location. So basically the idea is is if if you're at the bank and there's a scene at the bank in the beginning, middle, and end, you're going to shoot all of your bank stuff in a week. Yeah. But with the way that he wanted to do it in order to get the process going, they went back three separate times to that same location. And so you've got to pay more for the location. You've got to pay more for the setup. You've got to pay because every time you hit a location, you got to have a parking place for all of the crew. You got to have a place for lunch. I mean, it's it's a huge undertaking for everything. <laughs> but then again, you're Jim Carrey and the and the movie was a big hit. I mean, that's yeah. a movie with Bradley Cooper in it. And he's like one of the people in it. Yeah, that and like Wedding Crashers were, yeah, yeah. Like Wedding Crashers and uh-huh. that right. were like the movies that he was like, oh, he was in that. And right. And it took off after that. Yeah. Yeah. And so you look at those and you go, okay, well, I mean, that's a real big budget movie. And I've also done the movies where, you know, I told this story just recently. I did a movie that I'd written called Hollywood Palms. And in the script, there's this fountain in the middle of this apartment complex. And it's, it's really important to the story just because it's a, everything happens in the courtyard. And so we needed the fountain, but the fountain cost $2,500 a day. And it was the most expensive thing in the movie because <laughs> the movie was so small budgeted. And so, you know, I was at the same time I was doing a TV show, the JAG, and we would be able to, we were shooting at an air base and they had lined up a bunch of F-14 so that we could do a walk and talk in front of them. And so I'm, we're looking at maybe, what, a billion dollars in aircrafts, and then I'm racing to the location because we've got a $2,500 fountain that's going to be wrapping at 6 a.m., and we have to get all of our shooting done. 
So, I mean, money-wise, it's really amazing what has to be done and how, you know, I was listening to the Ghoulies one today and, and all of the things that they had to do, the, the idea of, you know, painting a hallway, you know, three different colors. They did the same thing. Yeah. They did the same thing from the beginning of time. There was an old Western Street at Paramount that is now a parking lot. What is it? The, toward Paradise Down and build a parking lot. Um they had this Western street that was in all these Westerns and then they had a water tank. So you had this Western street and a town and that thing has been in Gunsmoke, Bonanza, Little House on the Prairie, um, everything. And so the big movie studios would have these standing sets that, you know, they wouldn't go out somewhere. They would just shoot there on the lot and it saves them money. I just, I love, I'm a big fan of Hollywood. Like back to the future, like the clock tower, like that, downtown was in like a ton of movies too right that's that, at the, that was at the universal yeah it's at universal it was at universal and then they had a big fire there it burned down and they rebuilt it but that same that same spot in fact uh warner brothers or when we shot blazing saddles there the western street is on one side and then it kind of ends and then that street kind of turns into what is called Stars Hollow. The town of Gilmore Girls is this the is the location of Stars Hollow. And that's just right next to um the, the the Western Street in in Blazing Saddles. And of course Blazing and the Western Street in Blazing Saddles, I believe, is the same Western Street they just used for or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with Clinton. Oh wow. That's cool. I love that. I love that they have when they have those sets. That's yeah. I mean, we had, uh, there, there, I'm, I'm sorry, just one last thing. So we were no, doing, when, when, I was, when I was on Little House on the Prairie, my brother and I were on the show together, and they brought in Ray Bolger from uh, The Wizard of Oz, who played the Scarecrow, and he was guest starring on the show. And back then, it was maybe 1977, and Wizard of Oz came out in 39, so 40, 50, 60, 70. So like 40 years, you know, it's close to 40 years and they, that they shot it. And we were shooting in stage 15 on, on MGM's lot, which is their biggest stage. And they had just removed this old oil-based heater over in the corner somewhere. And Ray Bolger got us out of school. And he says, come with me, children. And he took us over to where this radiator was. This big square was, you know, this big square heater had been removed. And underneath it had been sitting on a painted floor. And on the painted floor was the painted yellow bricks from Wizard of Oz that it had been that long that they just, they painted all the bricks because they were painted bricks. They weren't real. And then, you know, like it, then they covered it up and then just no one uncovered it for 40 years. And we just so happened to be there with Ray Bolger when they uncovered it. And it's like that happened there, like physically in that, that, that spot. It was really cool. Oh my God. That's unbelievable. No, so your so your brother acted. Did you have another sibling that acted too? No, just myself and my brother. My brother Matthew Lavito, okay. and he was he played Albert on Little House on the Prairie, and he did a movie you guys might like called Deadly Friend. Oh yeah, yeah. So he was he was on that, and he did a show called Whiz Kids. And uh, I'm trying to think if he was in any. Is he older or younger? He's younger. He played Eric Roberts as a younger boy in King of the Gypsies going way, way back. And he was in Woman nice. Under the Nice. That's when I, I interviewed Eric. Yeah, that was his first. That was his big movie. Yeah. And so my brother played him as a young kid in that movie. And they shot that in New York. 
Oh my god, that's so cool. No, I was going to ask you, like, because you look at all your things, you're you play like a, I guess, a young Ted Kennedy, right? In a movie, yeah, which is great. Yeah, there was a movie called Young Joe, the Forgotten Kennedy, about Joe Kennedy who you know died in the war, and I played his brother Teddy, who of course would then become you know Teddy Kennedy. But yeah. uh, we shot that uh, up in Seattle, and it was uh, uh, Peter Strauss played Joe Kennedy, and I, I don't know who I think, and Lance Kerwin played I think Bobby Bobby Kennedy. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm just looking at it's I think it's so fascinating because obviously the goal, I know you're young, but it seems like you're probably into it and thinking about it like, hey, I got to get a series. Like, I got to get a series because right. that's when you know that you're going to be, you know, getting, you know, making some money. So, like, you're in all these things like Starsky and Hutch, which is so cool. And then how does Little House in the Prairie happen? Is that just a connection from a previous job or no. Well, I mean, it could have been, and I'm not, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, my brother had played Michael Landon, uh, the year prior to me starting on little house, he played Michael Landon's character, Charles Ingalls in a flashback. He did two episodes. And so he was the young Charles Ingalls. And then a year later, they, I got a call on a Wednesday or I watched the episode. I watched Little House on the Prairie aired on Wednesdays. It aired Monday and Wednesdays at different times, but it was then airing on Wednesday. I watched the episode on Wednesday, and then Thursday afternoon I got picked up by my mom from school, and this happened all the time. When we'd get picked up from school, she'd go, you have an interview, and so we're going to go to Paramount. And so we drove to Paramount. I auditioned for Little House on the Prairie for this character, Andy Garvey, and then they they said, okay, great. We want you to read for Michael. We need to drive you out to Simi Valley, which is about 50 miles from Paramount. So we drove out to Simi Valley right after the audition. It's like about five o'clock now. And we read for Michael Landon, me and a couple other kids. And then at the end of it, he held on to me and he let the other kids go. And he goes, okay, great. You got it. And then I started work the very next morning. So I got an audition like at 3.30 in the afternoon on a Thursday. I'd seen the show on Wednesday. I was a big fan. I'm reading yeah. with Michael Landon less than 24 hours later, and then I'm working the next morning at 7.30 with Melissa, and I'm in the Little House barn, and all these quote-unquote wolves are attacking us. It was like it was a very surreal experience to have happen that quickly because it was not like anything – I'd experienced before as far as auditions. That's a, that's a insane Wednesday to Friday. Yeah. Wednesday you're watching Friday. You're, you're, you're on in it. it. Yeah. And then, and, and, then, and then on top of it, <laughs> just cause you know, I, I probably still the same way now, but back then they didn't really tell kids anything. It was like Monday or Tuesday, the following week, I found out that my character was going to come back. And then it was, the second episode I was in that I found out, oh, no, you're what they call a semi-regular, which means that they had done a deal where I, you know, I'm guaranteed a certain amount of shows. And then by the middle of that season, I found out that I was going to be on for years. And I was I ended up being on for like four years. But, um, yeah, it was it was a slow roll. It, was, it happened really fast, <laughs> but I just did not get the I get an understanding of what exactly was really happening. And that's cool. You got to work with your brother. So he was on around the same time, too. Yeah, what happened is, uh, and why I say I think, you know, you asked, you know, was there any connection? I'm not sure if it was a connection, but I know that Michael knew my brother and liked my brother. And yeah, cool. so I don't know if he had it all planned out, but 
Uh, my brother played him as a young man in season three. I joined in season four. And then Michael wrote the part of Albert for my brother in season five. And so from season five on, my brother was on the show. And then uh, I think they wanted to spin Merlin off into his, the guy that played my dad, Merlin Olson, yeah. into his own show. And so they spun us off into a different town. And then they decided, well, we like Merlin, but we're, we want him to be a different character. And so they made up a show called Father Murphy. And then I was kind of off the show. You know, I kept I kept pitching him like, you know, maybe Andy comes back to town without Paul. <laughs> maybe he maybe yeah. he's just hanging around town, you know, collecting a check or something. <laughs> no, it's cool. The brothers when they work together. I interviewed Stanley Livingston, and he was already on My Three Sons. Uh huh. I think for two years, and then his brother Barry was on the show too. So he was able to work with his brother. Like right, nothing beats that man, especially when you're a kid. You know, you probably might be a little nervous, but like you have your brother there. That's great. What was great about it was we got to play and we got to be together. Brothers, I don't know if you have a brother. Do you have a brother? No, I don't. Okay. You don't get along all the time. <laughs> yeah. And if you're not getting along and you still have to be professional, that could be difficult. But the, I think the really the beneficial part was a lot of times when you have siblings that act the parents are spread thin because if one is working on one show and another is working on another show it's difficult but with us we were going to the same place and so yeah. it was that that part was really easy and with little house it was you know it's it's still we they they were building the freeway out to Simi Valley when we were doing the show so we would be able to take the freeway to half half the way there the way that it is now, the freeway goes all the way there and it still takes about 45 minutes to get to that location. So it was really, really out there. So you felt like you were back. There was no, you know, there was no infrastructure. So they had the honey wagons and they had the trucks that they brought, but that was about it. And so it was like living what it looked like. It was, that's what it was like. <laughs> so at that, when that show, you're trying to pitch the idea, like, Hey, you come back to town. Did that make, because right around that same time, you did like a couple episodes of Love, Do Love Boat. Did uh -huh. that make the decision? I know age-wise, it timed out that college was around the corner, but did that make it easier that that series, like your role was done on Little House on the Prairie? No, not, I mean, it didn't make, what, I think there's a misunderstanding, which, you know, I get, because you're not in the middle of it with people when they look at the, from an outsider's yeah. point of view of a career. I, with, with few exceptions, I think most actors careers are guided by, did he get the part or did he not get the part? You know, it wasn't like I was deciding to do two episodes of Love Boat and then take a break. You know, it was yeah, just sort yeah. of like I did what I could get a hold of. And yeah. <laughs> when there was a period which, you know, every young actor goes through where you, your product changes from that of a child to that of a teenager. And Sometimes that is an easy transition. Sometimes it's not an easy transition. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I'm looking at, you know, the Howard brothers. There's Ron Howard and Clint Howard. Both of them starred in TV shows. You know, Ron Howard was on The Andy Griffith Show and Clint Howard was on Gentle Ben. And then, you know, they, they age into teenage years and then it's a different, they're different products. And it looks yeah. like Ron Howard was the product that they wanted more than Clint Howard. And so you have that aspect of, you know, having to rebrand yourself and trying to figure out what that new product is. And so it wasn't until probably 
probably Heather's that it took me to figure out what I could present as, you know, I could be a jock and then I ended up being a jock in a couple of different, different yeah. projects. And then again, once you transition from being a teenager to a young adult, you know, what that was the time from my teenage years to my young adult, you know, work, uh, I was kind of at the groundlings looking at comedy and trying to, you know, to hone all of that and get all of that going on. And then that created an adult career. How did improv come about? Was it something that you always had, were like a fan of or? Yeah, I always loved, I've always loved comedy and through a very twisty road, I ended up in a, a comedy troupe called Mice, which was this improv group run by this guy. And it was good training because we would play these clubs and dinner theaters and just the most, I mean, we played a, we played the back of a deli on Ventura Boulevard to three people for multiple nights. Like it was like our regular gig. And it was like, there was a lot of, you know, paying your dues then when it's like when you're, when, when the group on stage outnumbers the audience two to one, it's tough. And so I was in this group and the guy was running the group also, you know, ran a class. And then, you know, I just sort of got to the point where I, I wasn't any more talented than him or anything like that, but I just, we just didn't get along. And so I ended up going off and trying to start my own group. And then I realized, you know, why don't, why don't I just stop trying to create something that's already been created? And I auditioned for the groundlings. And I loved it. Oh, oh wow. my God, I loved it. The Groundlings School, if you, you know, if you have an opportunity, if you're not gonna, you know, check my school working actors school out, the Groundlings is great. And I loved it there. I loved the idea that you could work your way through the school and then at the end of it, you know, you're on stage and then possibly becoming, you know, a lifetime groundling. I made it all the way up to the vote and then I, I didn't get I didn't get voted in. And that happens, you know, it's like, I have to, I have to deal with that. Uh, but in my group, you know, like in my group of my classes was uh, Chris Catan, Sherry O'Terry, Anna Gasteyer, Chris Parnell. Oh my God. Oh, I'm forgetting the other. How can I forget it from last man on earth? He's in everything. Um, oh, Will Forte. Will Forte. Um, and then the group Jeez. before me was Will Farrell. And uh, just insane Wait, amount what of years is this? Is this late eighties while you're yeah, in Heather's? Yeah, early, early, early nineties, like late wow. eight, like ninety, ninety to ninety three. That era, yeah. yeah. Oh my and God. just the amount of talent that was there, you know, yeah. was like, and and again, the, the group, literally, the group that I was in, uh, they took about three of them to SNL. I again, I never yeah. got to audition for it. Um, this story isn't sounding as good as I thought it was, but the idea is, is that, you know, that's the reality of the business. You know, it's like you, yeah. I, I watched it all happen. I was thrilled for them. I would have loved to have been a part of that. Wanting to be on SNL was like so amazing, uh, but yeah, I mean, so, so I got, I had the bug there, but one of the, one of the groundlings who was a performer and also a teacher was there's a thing called the Sunday show. The Sunday show is like the, um, like the, 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 what is it? the spring league for the groundlings. And so you perform on Sunday and then from there you're voted into the main company or not. 
And so I had done two years in the Sunday show and the director of the Sunday show was um, a man by the name of Tony Sepulveda, who also happened to be the like number one casting director at Warner brothers. And so it worked out well for everybody. I was, you know, I was being hired, you know, by Warner brothers for Lois and Clark. I did a TV show there called hope and Gloria. And it was just, I was, I was able to get into things because of Tony and Tony knew me and he would recommend me because he knew the, you know, the, the, the work that I could do. And again, for him, you know, he's also looking for talent. So it was sort of like, you know, it was just, it was mutually beneficial. Um, yeah. I've talked to casting directors and that was what, that was like the spots they would go to, like the groundlings. I guess if they had the time, they'd fly out to like second city. Right. And UCB was also just starting here. Yeah. Oh, it was okay. Or the comedy store. They'd sit and they go there. Like the one lady I talked to, Mitzi would call her and be like, Oh, you have to check out this David Spade. And then she <laughs> casted him in uh, uh, one of the police Academy movies. But yeah. Is that Penny Perry or Fern Champion? Oh, Fern Champion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. If Fern Champion was a great, I think uh, she had. She had me in for a bunch of things back in the 80s. Yeah. But again, I mean, that I heard uh, your conversation today about ghoulies. It it was a different time then. The town felt smaller. It felt like there was more connections between people. And certainly now, you know, with YouTube and and digital, uh, you know, a great film or a great project can come from anywhere. Before, it was literally bounded by geography of, you know, how close you were to the cameras that could actually yeah. film something that would be considered professional, but now you can do it on your phone. Yeah. I don't want to plug other shows. Cause I always say like my interviews, but I don't know if you ever listen to Marin, uh, Mark Marin's podcast, uh-huh. but yeah. I listened to, I couldn't sleep last night. I listened to Ed Begley. Uh-huh. Did you ever, if you ever never heard his story, Oh my God. I've met him a few times. He's been around forever. Really? And he, he yeah. was also, there was a, there's a, a group of shows when I did JAG, it's created by a guy by the name of Don Belisario, who also did Black Sheep Squadron, which Ed Begley was in. And so like, oh, okay. he and a couple of those producers, I would run into them all the time. But yeah, it's a, it's a crazy, crazy close. It was a crazy close town. Yeah, he was talking about there was like two places he used to hang out with. I can't think of the bar. Tonkas or Tronkas or sounded like Tukas. Uh-huh. So it's like a I, weird name, but Trankus? he talks about, yeah, that's what it was. Yep. Right. That's out by the beach. He, yeah. He, him and Harry Dean Stanton would drink every, every night they would hang out every night. And then they were on a movie in Georgia and they said, they were sitting there talking, drinking. They go, you know what? We should call I forget, Giuseppe or whatever the guy's name was. The bartender. He goes, we should call him and check on him. See how he's doing. <laughs> like, yeah. No, he's wild. The stories are insane. So, so you go to school. Where'd you stay? Did you stay local or did you get out for a little oh, bit? Oh, no, I was super local. I went to Cal State Northridge. Oh, nice. They call it Cal State Nowhere. <laughs> it's a good baseball school, right? Aren't they great at college baseball? They had a good swim team. I didn't know about baseball at the time, but I know the swim team was Maybe really more good. Recently, I was into though. swimming, yeah. Um, but I, I went there. I also went to, uh, I, I, you know, I took a few semesters at SC trying to get into their film school. And then basically, uh, when I was doing the college thing, I got a job for a movie called um, Prince of Bel-Air with Mark Harmon. And that was kind of like the oh. pre-summer school thing. 
And I kind of had a talk with myself and said, look, you know, if I, if I keep stopping going to college because I'm working in movies and I want to be in movies when I get out of college, why am I going to college? And yeah. so I just, I just decided, okay, well, um, I'll miss out on all the college stuff, but you know, I'm already working. So that's kind of where I, I ended up. You can do all the college stuff in, in when you get to 1990 in Ghoulies, <laughs> you, can, you can take care of all the college stuff in exactly. one three month filming or four month filming for that. Everything that was done in animal house, we will do in Ghoulies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's so I think it's so cool like summer school and I've talked to so many people like the whole TV like especially in the Navy, in the 80s it was like if a certain show had you on as a guest star for a week it was like from that you were gold you'd be on so many different shows so like being in a movie like summer school having that like quote unquote like stamp of approval obviously you have your credits before that like being on Little House on the Prairie but like Carl Reiner like having a guy like that direct you is yeah. that something that is so big going forward? Cause from that point, it's like so many big movies within a few years. I'll tell you that, you know, the one thing that I really haven't made peace with and don't really understand as well as I would like to is I haven't had that experience directly with summer school. Working with Carl Reiner was amazing. And, um, it was it led directly to ski school happening because the guys making ski school just put offers out to Dean and I to say, Hey, will you come do ski school? And so that was a direct relational wow. idea of like, we want those two guys and we won't pay them any money, but they'll come up to Canada and we'll have a good time and we'll make a movie. And that's what we did. Aside from that, what has really been kind of like mystifying to me is it would. It feels like your work should propel you into some other work, but for yeah. me, my experience has been that each time I go and do a movie or a TV show, when I come back after work, everyone's like, "What's going on? Where have you been?" It's like, "Well, I just did this project." And they go, "Oh, we had no idea of that." Anyways, here's what we're doing, and it's sort of like I have to start over each time, and so wow. it's like, okay, so that's part of the business. I'm not going to, you know, bitch and moan about it and complain, but I have always wondered that myself too. It's like when I, after, um, after Jag, you know, you figure, okay, I've been on a show for 10 years. That's got to give me some clout. And the idea in my head was I've been on a TV show for 10 years. When I get off, if I, you know, cause a lot of people, once they've been on a TV show, they just won't audition. You have to make offers or that's it. Yeah. If I if I don't do that, if I agree to audition for anything because I'm not afraid of auditioning, in fact, I like it, then I should have no problem continuing to work because I'm a better actor than I was when I got on the show just for the fact that I've had 10 years of practice. And I, I thought for sure that I would never have a, a problem working again. I questioned whether or not I would be doing the projects I wanted, like, oh, would I be getting big movies or would I be getting, you know, another TV show? But I knew that I would always work. And then I didn't. I didn't. It's sort of like you look at the IMDb and, yeah, one thing follows another, but, you know, sometimes there's years in between and you look at it and you go, wow, that's, you know. And when you're living through it, you know, especially after JAG, when I thought so much that all I had to do was put the work in, 
No, it kind of I had to I kind of had to restart it because especially with Jag, a TV show that was not beloved in Los Angeles or New York in the sense that it wasn't buzzy or hip or anything, you know, like that. You know, it, it's it, people just didn't in town didn't know what I was doing, and they literally would say to me, "You know, I'm so glad you're back to acting." <laughs> Like I've been acting. Oh my gosh. And it's like, you know, just maybe look at my resume before I walk in. (laughs) Yeah. Damn, man. That's crazy. It's so weird that when you're on a show for 10 years, you'd think, but why didn't they like it? Like New York and LA. Was it just that? It's the I've, I've run into this as well with little house, little house. Again, when I got off a little house, it wasn't a show that the the West or East Coast was. A, it was not a big show. Like um, I had this conversation with Michael Landon of all people. Mork and Mindy had just come out, and Mork and Mindy was this huge rating success. Obviously, yeah. Robin Williams and I said, you know, are you worried about Mork and Mindy? And he goes, No, I'm not worried. I go, Well, it's like so huge. And he goes, Yeah, but Patrick, what you don't understand is, you know in 30 years, no one's going to remember Mork and Mindy and, but they're still going to be watching little house on the prairie. I go like in my head, you know, I had access to Michael Landon, but in my head I'm going, how can he be so sure? I didn't ask him. I wasn't a, you know, a jerk about it, but he explained, he says, look, you know, we are taking place in the 1780s. There's nothing about it. This show that will date it it's already dated. It's already in the past. So there's nothing about it that will make it look weird. Mork and Mindy with all of its, you know, bright colors and everything. And the one thing he didn't predict, which, you know, how could you, was how big, you know, Robin Williams is going to be. And so how big, yeah. how big that would, would be a part of it. But he was right. I mean, you know, you, you can find Little House pretty much playing, you know, at least between the hours of 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. You can find an episode of Little House almost anywhere you go anywhere. Oh, I'm but, sure. But Mork and Mindy, it's not like that. Same thing with Jag. I, I had this conversation that I'm having with you right now with Don Belisario. And I said, you know, I think Jag might be the same type of show. And he goes, oh, I, absolutely. I mean, everyone's in uniform. Uniforms hasn't changed since the 40s. So, again, it's, it's shot in the 90s. You know, there were no cell phones. Yet we're still on the air and people are still watching the show. And so that's why those shows are popular and people across the country, you know, connect to these shows and they're really good shows, which, you know, has a lot to do with it. But it wasn't Cop Rock. It wasn't Miami Vice. It wasn't, but no, Cop Rock got a lot of BS, you know, for being what it was, but it was cutting edge and everyone was excited about Cop Rock. Oh, it was, yeah. And all the people in Cop Rock, you know, through, you know, um, um, oh, oh. Why am I forgetting his name? The guy that created it. Um, all of them, they, you know, um, David Kelly worked on it. Um, Wolf old. didn't do that, right? No, no, no. It was it. it was uh, it was the guy that did L.A. Uh, um, New York NYPD Blue. My brain is just having a meltdown. Uh, but basically, all the people that worked on the show, you know, they got jobs elsewhere because they were on a buzzy show that everyone was talking about. You really didn't hear too much about the actors on the Waltons or Little House or on Jag. You know, my favorite, my favorite um, way that I kind of thought about it in my in my head was, you've heard of Walker Texas Ranger, right? And who played Walker Texas yeah. Ranger? Chuck Norris. He just turned eighty 
two today. Oh, is it today? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Chuck Norris, Walker, Texas Ranger. Everybody knows it. He had yeah. a partner, African American guy. Who's that? Oh, I wouldn't even know his name. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. And there was a girl on the show. And see how it becomes more and more murky as you go along. It's sort of <laughs> like it just sort of doesn't. You know, it, it, there's there's just these shows that have buzz, and you know, it just isn't. It wasn't the shows that I was on. So it was a it was a it was a real you know awakening to come back to that and kind of realize, okay, well, you got to reinvent yourself again. And then, you know, you can complain about it or you can just do it and see, you know, what the next thing is. And I'm in that period right now. I'm waiting to reinvent myself into like a next, you know, a grandpa or, you know, crazy Santa or something. Yeah. (laughs) So how did you come up with the jock? Was that just based on what characters that you were reading for? Was that the character in uh, Prince of Bel-Air? No, the character in Prince of Bel-Air was kind of a, um, it was a transform transforming character, which was kind of useful as far as the character started off as kind of this dorky loser who turns into this um, sexy beast that Mark Harmon trains. The, the, all, the whole idea was that Mark Harmon was this man boy who is hired by, uh, um, you know, a rich man to help his son become cool. Sort of like, you know, just like, uh, I can't remember it, Um, but basically that's what it was. And so uh, my character went from being like this loser guy to being, you know, you know, this buff tan guy who was having three ways, thanks to Mark Harmon's, you know, tutelage. And so that did a lot to literally show a a transition in the film itself. You know, the beginning of the film, I'd been working out and, you know, it's like I was in really good shape at that time. And so they had dressed me in all of these clothes that just downplayed everything. And I've got a round face, so it didn't look like I was, you know, like I looked like what I looked like. And then by the end of the show, they're taking my shirt off. They're they're throwing fake tan on me and doing all of these things. So it looked like this big transition. And then because of uh, Prince of Bel-Air, which Mark Harmon uh, was in with Kirstie Alley and also Dean Cameron. Dean Cameron played one of his oh. assistants. Basically, Mark got the band back together again and said, I want I want these kids in the movie. And so he had us come and audition. And he goes, I wanted Kirstie for the role. And so it was it was really type of uh, a coincidence. So I guess that's two projects that led. One led to uh, summer school, and then the next one led to ski school. So those three were connected. Yes, Stuart was telling me about Dean Dean was like that guy. I don't know if it was after summer school or he was like every role that fit that, that character that kind of like Stuart played in like beans Baxter and teen wolf too. He was like, Dean was the guy at every audition that I'd see. And he goes, you know, who would get the part. Dean would get the part. Every time. <laughs> Dean's amazing. Dean, you know, Dean and I have worked together a bunch. We wrote a movie and uh, called Hollywood palms and, um, nice. we did, uh, so it was you and him with the fountain. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was us that came up with the idea that we needed a fountain to begin with. <laughs> and, um, it was, you know, a really amazing time. And I, it, it's a perfect example of he's, he's not any less talented. He's more talented. I'd love to see more of him. Same with Stuart. Yeah. And it, it's so cool. The connections, obviously I would, I, I wouldn't know that you and uh, like Dean, but it seems like uh, Dean and Richard 
Richard Horvitz. Horvath, is uh-huh. that his name? Yeah, Horvitz. Yeah. They're yeah. still buddies. Yeah. Yeah, and they're doing they were doing like a joke a day during the when the pandemic started. And then like it was, was on the of, Yeah. Yeah. No, it was I mean, it was it was so deadpan. I just talked to Richard maybe two weeks ago. And I love him and and you know, and it's like he's super talented. I mean, he's got a crazy animation career, which Yeah, he's a big time writer, right? Uh voiceover. Voiceover guy. Oh, voiceover, he, yeah. Yeah, like Invader Zim and Angry Beavers and just uh, Ricky and uh, Billy and Mandy. Just amazing, amazing uh, talent. How'd you get into that? Because you got into the voiceover work in the in the 90s, right? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, I got into it by being at, <laughs> you know, it's like, here's the story. I was at this Hollywood barbecue and an agent found me and suggested that I go up for an audition for him. I got the audition. I read with one of his clients. His client recommended me. He signed me, and he's been my agent ever since. The reality was <laughs> the Hollywood party was, you ever go over to your friend's house, and there's like three of you looking at a barbecue, waiting for it to get hot? And it's yep. it's just it's it's not a party. It's just sort of like three guys looking at a barbecue, waiting to eat some burnt <laughs> meat and drinking beer. That's what that was. And this guy shows up and Paul is the guy and he shows up and he was a friend of my casting director buddy and we were just hanging out. And it ends up that he was working. He was a, he was a new agent at this talent agency and he sent me up for this role and I got the role. And then it just became this thing where it was a, a, a meshing of what they were looking for, you know, like the Dean Cameron type of thing where Dean Cameron played like the young Bill Murray type of, you know, guy that was loosely in control of everything in the voiceover world. They wanted everything used to be in a world, you know, like this big, huge. And so they wanted this new type of dude character that was like, you know, friendly and relatable and just sort of like your friendly neighborhood guy. And, I ended up being one of the people that filled that role. And again, what was so amazing about it was, and this is actual numbers, in the 90s, there was probably, counting everyone, about 30 people that did what I did um, for voiceover. It wow. wasn't like there was only 30 people in the world that could do it. It was literally just just 30 guys because all the auditions and everything, you'd go in. It was an audition. You'd drive to a place. You'd record on tape. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and then you would leave and you'd see the, all the same guys at the same places. There was like four different places you'd go. And, you know, one guy would say, hey, I got the Chrysler account. Now he's the voice of Chrysler. I was the voice of DiGiorno Pizza for like eight years. And, you know, it's not delivery. It's DiGiorno, you know, bought me a house. But it it was just a couple of guys. And so when I got into that, then I got a gig for a network that was called at the time the WB, which is now the CW. And I was I became their comedy promo guy. And so for all the comedies on the, sh- on the, on the, on the network, you know, it'd be like coming up next on the Wayans brothers, Marlon and Sean get into some crazy trouble. And so I would do those. That's amazing. And then it was like, it was a beautiful, wonderful career. And then I got that TV show Jag 
And I tried to keep both going, but then one had to go away and it was the voiceover career. So again, yeah. I, I'm done with JAG 10 years later. I figure, okay, I'll come back and I'll do voiceovers. My voice is the same. I can still act. I'll, you know, I'll audition and everything will be, I should, I should be doing fine. <laughs> the world changed and now it's even more different. I mean, look at you. You got a setup there that would be the envy of one of the studios that I used to record for. And so does oh, everybody. You know, a snowball mic, a USB, and an internet connection. And you can audition from anywhere, and people do. And so I I heard from my agent. I said, you know, okay, seriously, number-wise, how many people are they auditioning for the stuff that you have me audition for? Like the stuff that is through a casting director to a top-tier agency and is auditioning like the number, you know, the professional level voiceover people. He goes about 500. So 500 people are auditioning for something that, you know, I want to get the part, but I feel so sorry for the person casting it. How can you listen to 500 voices and go 384 was really good, but I don't know. 415 is coming on strong. And he's really, how do you do that? So it's a completely different world now. You know, I, so I, I'm trying to get back into it. I mean, I auditioned. I have my I have my setup here. I record in you know that that room right there. Yeah. And you know, I send in stuff and I record. I just did a Netflix looping gig where you know they buy all the shows from Czechoslovakia and then we put American voices on them and then we all watch them on Netflix. But it's just a different business. It's you know instead yeah. of the thirty the thirty guys I could name, it's literally thirty thousand people across the country that you know on Fiverr. People. You know, think about it. Fiverr, you can get a guy doing your voiceover for twenty five bucks. It's yeah. all non union, and some of these guys have great pipes. And you know, yeah. look, I like I'd like to say that I'm talented, but come on, if you can read copy, it's it's not that hard. <laughs> so there's a thousand people out there could who can do it. So I just have to ask before we get into uh, just a few other questions about like kind of the way you're working on now, you're working actors school. Right. So before we get to that and I kind of ask about ghoulies go to college, just from what like Ron talked about, like working with John Beekler, who was like really a legend. Like he directed a ton of movies, but I love Friday the 13th part seven and I love his effects and what he's done over the years, but right. Was he really talking with the ghoulie on set to you guys? Uh, he, I, I totally believe it. I wasn't there when he did it. Um, but he, he had a great love of Hollywood and a great love of movies. And he would go into character voices all the time. You know, Lon Chaney and Peter. Um, ah, Peter. Oh, man, don't get old. Um, he, he would do all these great voices and he would tell great stories and he loved movies. So I could see that. The weird thing about Ghoulies for, for me was I never worked with any of the Ghoulies. So as far as I was concerned, it was, you know, Animal House 1990. And that was pretty much the movie we made. You didn't see any of the Ghoulies at all? Like they were, oh yeah, you never were any scenes with them. I was never in any scenes with them because of the high, I mean, even on a low budget movie, again, they're they're going to be your fountain. They're going to be the most expensive thing there. So they took yeah. care of them, and so they weren't just hanging around. So I never really saw them. As it turns out, because of my my friends in the in the voiceover world, I knew all of the guys that did 
the the voices. And then, of course, you know, they became, you know, Bob Bergen is Porky Pig and Tim SpongeBob and Richard Kind. I mean, it's like, it's a crazy The fact that row. Richard Kind was the voice of the cat ghoulie right. was like the biggest like gem. Because we cover like a ton of movies that some sequels that people really like never, like Meatballs 3. Like I never knew it was a, a Meatballs 3. But that's the one that was, like, no, that's four. So that's oh, really? Four. Okay. Meatballs three is with a young Patrick uh, Dempsey, and he wow. plays Rudy, all grown up from the first movie. Okay, I love that they're still trying to co- connect the characters. <laughs> and the first scene of the movie, it's like the exposition of, "Hey, Rudy Tripper," and he's like reading like a a wi- not a will, but like something that's signed off to him, like the camp's yours, Rudy from tripper like he's reading it it's so ridiculous but no I, i'm sorry i gotta stop that? it there because meatballs to me is like one of the greatest things in the sense of like you know, oh. Ivan reitman you had bill murray they made this they spun gold out of you know literally nothing and it was all about bill murray and then yeah four five i don't know however many sequels i think they stopped at four i think they stopped at the Corey feldman what they did wow. was after two as a good cast that's like john lyre cat yeah, but, you're not, but it's not. But it's people. about it's Bill Murray. That was the whole thing that was so funny. It's like the, the same thing with you know they did a good job at Ghostbusters again. But you know you look at Ghostbusters and it's a goof of three of the funniest guys that were out uh, that were in comedy yeah. at, the, at that moment. Sorry, go ahead. So yeah, same same thing with Ghoulies. <laughs> same thing with Ghoulies. Yeah, but the fact that they made him talk in that one because they didn't talk in the other ones, and there was one point in the movie that I really wanted. Both of you guys, because I'm sure you know the movie by heart. I'm oh, kidding. Yeah. But like the scene where you you're peeping when you guys are doing the panty raid and the ghoulies right. somehow are doing the panty raid. And they're actually nice guys because they chop the very creepy security guard <laughs> that that guy when he's asking what uh, Eva LaRue for all the panties in the house to borrow them. But when, but when you both you guys are both peeping on the Playboy model. And well, it looks like you guys are looking at her, but you're not. And you both jump through the window. That's when I thought you guys were finally going right. to converge, but it never happened. No, in fact, it was it, the. It never occurred to me how weird it was until you know the years later. But yeah, I I personally didn't have a a, a scene with them. Um, yeah, and you know it was. Uh, I remember having fun on the movie. I remember it being. John was a really fun director and everyone was really creative. The art direction was really creative and, you know, the show was lit beautifully. I mean, it's like they, I mean, they, they did a, you know, a, a, it's like a feature, a big movie, a big studio job on the lighting. And it was just, uh, Jason Scott Lee was one of the guys in crazy. Right. I mean, it's so it's like, I remember, <laughs> I remember working with him and okay. I apologize to everyone. This is the disclaimer. Please don't hate me. This was the eighties. I'm telling a story about the eighties. Okay. I don't, I don't approve of any of this. So he's playing this guy who's Asian and this is of the year of, you know, long duck dong. And we were doing the scene, and his line was he had named his stereo Mr. Yamabachi. And, you know, the ghoulies busted up. 
And we do the scene, and he goes, Mr. Yamabachi, what have they done to you? Cut. And he turns to me and he goes, Patrick, I swear to God, I can't fucking believe I'm doing this. It's like, this is the worst. This is the worst. And I go, dude, you're doing, it's got to do what you got to do. But yeah, we would, we would hang out and talk. And one of the guys that would hang out with us was one of the extras. And this extra was this really tall kid. And they dressed him up like this really geeky guy, like from basically they, they dressed him up like from Animal House, like the, the geek from Animal House. And so he was always in the scenes with us because he was taller than us. They could put him in the back and he, he would be really, you know, he'd look really good. So we started talking to him and it's like, you know, he didn't have a SAG card. So me and Jason and Evan, the guy that played the lead, talked to the producers and said, look, you got to Taft-Hartley this guy. He's, you're putting him in everything and it doesn't cost you anything but like 200 bucks and it would be a start for him. And, and that was Matt Lillard. And Matt Lillard yeah. started right then. And at the time, my dad had an agency, a, t- a, a talent agency, and he took him on and oh. he got him his first gig over at MTV called uh, Skate TV. And it was like SKA8 number, you know, like <laughs> Skate TV. And so he, he would go around on MTV and like, you know, report on skating stuff. And then, you know, as things continued, my dad you know, called him in and said, look, Matthew, I'm going to have to drop you because I'm not a big enough agent and <laughs> you're going to be a big star. And so we're going to help you get another agent. And, you know, and that's, and that was how, you know, I met Matt. And to this day, oh. he's one of the nicest guys. And still after all of his success and everything, you know, if I call up and, you know, if I have, you know, Hey, could you do Shaggy for me for a friend of mine? He's like, he drops whatever he's doing and, you know, he's, that's he's amazing. amazing. And Jason, the same thing, you know, after Bruce Lee and Rapa Nui, you know, like a one, two punch, this guy's, you know, international movie star. And, you know, it's just like, he's not Mr. Yamabachi no more. <laughs> he's not. No, there's a scene in when I realized that it was Matthew Lillard. It, he's like walking down the hallway. Like skip is, I think he's talking to Eva LaRue and he's walking down the hallway and he like almost covers his face in like this really weird way and i'm and i had to pause it i'm like holy shit and i think his name then was like matthew because i don't think his real last name is lillard it was like something different i kind of remember no i i i think and i could be getting this wrong this is years and years ago i think his name is lillard but he was going by like matthew lane or something some hollywood oh that's what it was matthew lane or lane or something yeah Yeah. yep (laughs) that's great what a great story (laughs) Yeah, and it was it was wonderful because you know you do these things, and at that time it wasn't a story. At that time, it was just this guy who just come from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and he got a gig being an extra, and he made it happen. I mean, it was like just give him his his SAG card. But you were no matter what you were being a kind guy, and look at the way it turned out. You know, you never know. Well, you, you never know, and you, you hope it turns out for the best like that. Um, and I, I would like to say I've done it a ton of times, but you know, not really. <laughs> I mean, it really is. I mean, he, the, the, he, he really did stand out. I mean, and he was a super nice guy. So you want to do things for those people. No, that's good. Yeah. Like we talked about like Heather's and then ski school, which man, I don't know of any other movie. I watched it again the other night. Cause I watched it before I saw, 
talked to Stuart, like I think it was a couple of years ago now that I interviewed him. But I think that's the only movie in history that has like, well, that's not like a an X-rated movie that has boobs in the credits, in the <laughs> opening credits. Right. We're way ahead of Euphoria. <laughs> yeah. But like, what was, what was the, was there a real ski movie that came out in the 80s that was like a serious drama that, that this movie was like a take on? Because it's so crazy right from the jump. It's like this super rivalry between the two. And I was trying to think if there was one in the 80s that was more of like a, a, a drama, like a teen drama, but I couldn't think of any. I'm unaware of one. I know Warren Miller did all of the, the great ski movie documentaries. And in fact, a lot of the ski guys that were in Warren Miller films, you know, were in this movie. Oh, nice. It was, we shot it up in Whistler, British Columbia at Black Home Whistler. And it, we were in a premier place for skiing of which I'd never skied. And I lied my ass off and said, yeah, I can ski. And, really? you know, yeah, I, they kind of, they kind of discovered that I couldn't, when I couldn't figure out how to get off the ski lift at the top of the mountain and they go, you lied to us, huh? And I go, yeah, but I'm here and you can't <laughs> fire me now. And they, and they, so they had a stunt guy do all of my skiing. And then I had to ride on the director's back to the different locations because I couldn't ski to the locations. It was embarrassing. But um, so they had all these great ski guys from all these different movies. But I think, I mean, there was another movie with Roger Rose called Ski Patrol. And again, I know Roger because Roger is voiceover guide. So we knew each other and we've talked to each other about it. And we will talk to people who saw the beginning of Ski Patrol or the beginning of Ski School and then watch the end of our movie or his movie, and they don't know they're two movies. Because Ski Patrol and Ski School, you've got your Taco Bell and other things. You're not really paying attention. Um, (laughs) You're laughing, and that's about it. And so we came up with the idea that between it, there's a movie called Ski Patrol School, which (laughs) exists in people's minds but never existed in reality. But I think Ski Patrol (laughs) was probably the... If anything, I think these are variations again on Animal House. You know, the slobs yeah. take over. And so you've got Ski Patrol, which is very similar, but they were the big budget. And then Ski Patrol and Ski School is low budget. And, you know, it was so Section low budget eight, that man. Section 8. The one of the reasons why I think people enjoy it at all is because we were given the opportunity to come up with stupid, dumb things that you know, the Shakespeare theater and uh, just a bunch of stuff that shouldn't be in a movie for really good reasons. But Dean and Stuart were really funny and they would improvise a bunch of different things that ended up being funny in the moment and they caught it on film. And so I think the unique quality of ski school, (laughs) I can't believe I made that sentence. Uh, The unique quality of ski school is that it looks like the same. It looks like what really happens when you go and ski and get high and just party. And yeah. It doesn't make sense. And you and if you try to explain it to someone, they don't have as much fun as you did doing it. Yeah. It's like they just the the like any movie. You have to have the good versus evil, and you know you have the preppies or the socias versus right. you know the greasers, and then you find the. You know the 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 stereo system and the lights. Like, 
Exactly. It is boring, dull party. Yeah, it's such a such an awesome movie. It's a movie that like when you were when when I was like 10, 11, it was like a movie that like my buddy's older brother would be like, dude, you gotta watch this man. They're like 15, 16, <laughs> ripping bongs, and we're like, I don't know if we should be here right now. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, I think the amount of character work I put into to Ed was I, I decided I was gonna wear my my cap backwards. And that was that was the extent to which I put you know <laughs> backstory and everything into it. Like no matter what, he's never taking his hat off and it's always gonna be backwards. It's like, okay, good job, good job. <laughs> some some big fan, I don't know if Dean told you, like put together like trading cards for Yeah, I have them right here. Have you seen them? Oh, sweet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dean, Dean got me a set. I was really, they're beautiful. They're beautiful. Oh man. That's so cool. Again, when you're making these movies, you never know like years later, like who's going to have that connection with them. Like even people that I talked to that made like, like, like movies that at the time, like this guy made a Canon Ninja movie. He, he made revenge of the ninja. And he thought nobody would ever see it. He put it right. in the candy. He went to the movie theater, did the old, like, sit in the back of the theater. He's like, oh, my God, these kids are going nuts during these, you know, fighting scenes. And then he goes, and now, Doug, I'm talking to you, you know, 40, almost 40 years later about the same movie. I never thought that would happen. And I bet a lot of people really do think about that. You're done with the movie. You're like, all right, see you. On to the next one. Because that's what the business is. Yeah. It's a job to job for the most part. Look, I got with ski school. I remember again that happened quickly, not as quickly as Little House, but you know they they said, "Hey, we want to do this movie." I said, "Yeah, great. Here's the script. We're going to be flying you up next week." And I remember being in Canada, calling my agent, you know, because there was something with the contract, and I call my agent and, and I go, "You know, so what what's going to happen with this part of the contract?" And they go, "Well, first of all, you know, they can't do anything because you haven't you haven't left Los Angeles yet." I go, no, I'm I'm here in Canada. I'm in the production office. And they go, you're in the production office? Like, just, <laughs> it was not well put together. The communication wasn't that great. And it was, I mean, by the time we were done, I think it, we, we were up there for three weeks, I think, total. And that was it. And, you know, you're done wow. with it. And you don't, but again, remember, we're in British Columbia. So by 10 o'clock at night, it's still dusk. So there was lots uh. of shooting time. And it was just, yeah, I was done with that movie and I came back and that was a quick job and back to auditions. You don't think about it. To be honest, I didn't even think it would ever get released and it didn't for another year. And they had to, and then they reshot a whole bunch of things a year later. And then they had me come in and the entire, you were talking about the opening of the movie, the entire movie opening where, you know, there's the voiceover where the guy's explaining everything about who everyone is. That's me. They just had me do it, not as character, but just as a voiceover guy. They said, "You got a good oh voice. God. Why don't you just, why don't you just, you know, read all of this copy to explain the whole movie?" <laughs> and so, oh you know, you God. do that- these things, and you just don't know what they're gonna, what's gonna happen. The only one that I did know if it worked, if it was gonna be anything, was Heather's, and I was completely wrong. I thought it was gonna be a big hit, and it came out, and it bombed, and I was like, "Well, I guess I totally got that wrong." And then it became what it became, but it took years. So many movies that are like that, that become like these cult classics, like just don't, 
like the monster squad. I think that's like one of the coolest movies. You have these teen, you know, these preteens going against, you know, the universal monsters. That movie yeah. at the time, like did nothing. Yeah. And I mean, what's so funny is I rewatched it because I love that movie and like the, the credits, it's like, I, I, I was so surprised. Like one of the director ended up directing episodes of Jag, uh, the cinematographer ended up directing episodes of Jag. Oh, Fred Decker? Uh, yeah. Fred Decker and Dwayne Dunham. Yeah. And um, just all these people. And Shane that, Black wrote it. Yeah. I love that they had a company called Black and Decker, which like is one of my favorites, <laughs> you know, but, so I'd find a guy named Decker just to do that if I was named Black. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean the fact just there were so many great things in that movie, and you just you discover these things you know that are kind of out there, and you know it. And nowadays, because back back then, in the eighties, you had video, and so you knew that you could maybe have an afterlife. But I just recently had to put together a reel, and I could not get over the fact that I basically, with maybe one or two projects, I could find everything that I was in online in some form or another. And so it's amazing how much is available from that time. Yeah. Wow. Well, Patrick, this has been awesome. So I want to ask you, so working actor school, how long has that been around? What made you start it? What made me start it was um, the, you know, the, the lockdown and COVID and everything. I was just, needed something to do and having been an actor from a young age and been at all these different levels as, as far as you know a, a kid actor a teen actor I just have all these experiences from a working actor's perspective from being on the set and I've gone to a lot of different classes of the very serious type of acting schools you know and again where they have the the term studio in them, you know, the actor's studio, the, you know, yeah. these, and, and what they are, are wonderful. They're a safe, warm place where you can do nothing but act and you don't have to deal with the realities of a set. There's no screaming AD. There's no time constraint. Um, you know, you're, you can be on a set and have had your, your, your whole monologue. Perfect. And then they turn on a jet, which has happened to me, and it affects your body so much that you poop your pants and you can't remember a line that there are things that happen on sets that just don't happen in an actor's studio. So I wanted to bring that idea to the reality so that if you go through the course that, you know, you learn how to act, of course, but the idea is, is that you're also going to be taught what it's like to be on a working set. It's sort of like the difference between architecture and then building a house. You 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 learn all of the steps to actually build a character and get it on the screen and how to deal with the different type of directors and the different type of actors that are out there. And so it's called workingactorschool.com. And one of the benefits that I never considered up until the lockdown was we do it all on Zoom. And so you don't have to live in Hollywood to train in Hollywood. It's just like what I was talking about with the voiceover, you know, you know, make, make the new technology work for you where, you know, I've got students that are all across the country right now and they're all in the same class, different times, different time zones, but that's something that's brand new and gives the opportunity for someone in, you know, in Iowa or Missouri who's not coming out to Hollywood and risking their entire fortune on trying to become an actor, being able to train with someone who's been in this 
town, you know, since he was a little kid. And so yeah. we've got, uh, I'm not knowing when this is coming out. We've got classes always rotating. Um, right now we're in March and we've got a new, um, a new basic class starting up. There's a new one starting in April. And so every couple of weeks, something new is starting and they're always listed on the website at workingactorschool.com. So come and check us out and, you know, you can reach me at the, the website and, you know, if you have any questions, great, but it's, it's really a fun based idea to teach you how to act with a real practical approach to it. No, that's great because most of the time, if there's like acting classes, it's either you have to be really even a major city, even in like a city, you know, state like Iowa or anywhere, you still have to be in the hub in order to get to anything. Even me being in Jersey, Uh I wanted to do like, even like an improv class and I'm either going down to Philly Right. I'm going to New York and that's a pain in the ass. So that's great that you started that. And you can do it. I mean, you can see behind me. This is, this is my office at my house and you can, I can yeah. do it here with the beauty of, you know, zoom and breakout rooms and everything. I can have two character. I can two, I have two actors working together. I can give them direction, have them go work on it while I work with some other actors. And then we bring it in front of the whole class and then the whole class gets to see it. And yeah, it's not the same as being in the physical location. There are things that you cannot do. But having said that, there's a a universe of things that we're doing that you can't do um, in in an in-person class. You cannot work with someone if you're in Washington and they're in Illinois. And it's it's fascinating. And it brings out so many new um, types of people because I'll be honest with you, the, the the type of person that ends up in Hollywood, they got to be a little bit crazy, man. They got to be a little bit like off the beaten track because they're here, they're risking everything and they don't really, they're not really living in the real world. We're insane, crazy people. The people that I get to work with at working actor school are people who love acting, who want to try it, but they're at home. (laughs) You know? And, And so, and so there's a whole nother level of, you know, stability that I haven't really experienced. And it's really kind of interesting and I'm learning a lot. So it's fun for everybody. People, you know, are, are really enjoying it and um, yeah, come and take a look. That's cool, man. Yeah. This won't be out for a few months. But what I'll do is I'll put it on my website and I'll mention it in the, in the beginning of episodes and just mention it because uh, and that's pretty cool, man. And you're right. You have to be crazy. I've interviewed a few people. I, there's a ton that their origin stories include include going to LA and risking it all. Like, yeah. you know, they're, Hey, I was gonna, it was gonna be my last audition. And then I got the role finally, but like one was like DB Sweeney. Right. He was doing an acting school in New York and he's got such a tough guy. That wasn't over like face to face on zoom, but I feel like he was just like, he just has this look about him. that I feel like some of the things that he was saying, his stories were just like, yeah. And I was about to almost like pulverize a guy. Cause he was like such this like intense yeah. actor, but he was in acting school and they basically said, Hey, cause he wanted to be able to get people in front of him. So he convinced somebody at the school to let him use a the theater, like on a really weird night, whatever is like the slowest night. And they're like, fine, whatever, we'll do what you want. So he went, handed out flyers, put them on cars and he got people to come in. Not a ton of people, but one of them happened to be somebody Right. And they got him his first role. And then he was working with uh, 
he was like very working with the whole Estevez Sheen family. His first like four movies uh-huh. were with either Charlie or oh, Martin wow. Sheen or Emilio. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, with anything, when you have passion, you're going to have the extremes, the bell, the bell curve. Yeah. And the bell curve and the top of that curve, you know, or the edge of that curve get, ends up going to New York or LA. And then the middle of it is in the middle of the country where it's like, I still want to have food, but I like to act. But what can I do? Patrick, this has been awesome. And Mookie, one thing I have to say before I let you go, I really think you should have got the perfect end of that script of Ghoulies Go to College would have been if you got the pranking crown. I agree. That's a great. That's a great theory. Which I thought right. you're right. Yeah, it's like, come on, Skip's got to be, you know, handing it down. You know, he's moving on. He's yeah. got a girlfriend. You know, he's he's settled down. He's learned his lesson. And like you said, not flounder, like in Animal House. Right. The guy who plays not flounder, he <laughs> says the the craziest exposition I've ever heard in a movie. He explains that the competition's over that they got together and had an emergency vote and we won. Right. Play the credits. You got to tie that shit up. But the end of the movie, one fun fact, the the final song, which I think is the coolest song, Uh the end of the movie, it's such a good track. It's a band that I can't find anything on. And the soundtrack never came out. They're called Doug Doug and Uh the Pontiacs. And you can't find the song anywhere or the band on Google, which you think you can Google anything and get something. Right. When you Google the band name, you just get there's a party going on uh-huh. and like two websites or on YouTube. You can listen to the final song with the with the credits, but you can't find it alone anywhere. Crazy. Wow. It's, it's going to be the next great Internet search. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm going to quest make that song famous. <laughs> Man quest. <laughs> and you get the and you get the ghoulie crushing the the Miller light can. And that's the the end. And then the credits roll. Yeah, I, you gotta give it to the I mean, I love that they went full ghoulie on on them, you know, dressing them, having them speak, and just <laughs> it's not they're the three stooges, basically. Oh, they were the three stooges, and the the fact that all of your guys' clothes somehow fit them well because they shrunk in the in the wash there's logic (laughs) (laughs) there's the logic guys don't know how to do wash yeah wasn't patrick awesome the ghoulies go to college stories that matthew lillard the fact that he he was looking out you know him and uh skip (laughs) were looking out for matthew and uh look where that turned out to be did it was it the only reason? No, but to, to when you're a young actor or, or you're young at anything, when you're so green and somebody says, you know what, I'm gonna help this guy out, you know, it, it means something. And I love that just from his Prince of Bel Air working with Mark Harmon, Mark Harmon goes, Hey, let's get the you know, band back together. That goes to summer school, and then summer school goes to ski school. And how about his voiceover career? I loved that, and I love that he kicked it into. The Waynes Brothers, what are they doing? Uh, what are they up to this week? And, uh, man, great chat. Don't forget working actor school. So if you ever want to try acting class, but there's none around, you can do this over Zoom with Patrick 
Laberto. You could do it with Mookie, who should have got the pranking crown, and Ghoulies go to college. Great guy. Honestly, I love talking to him. Talked to him to, for a few times through email. Just a genuine human being. So you check out Working Actor School. You won't be disappointed. And your homework, The Last Sharknado. Check it out. It's free on Amazon Prime. And I don't know how Jamie's going to like it, but I had so much fun watching it. The The cameos were great. Uh, I love the time traveling aspect, but we'll see with my uh, co-pilot in the sequel watching journey and how he liked it. So don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast. Follow us on all social media at Sequels Only. And don't forget to check out our website, SequelsOnly.com. Good night. Good night, guys.